Welcome to the Sales Engine Gab Fest. I'm Craig Wortman, your host, and I am delighted to be here with two fantastic guys, serial, serial entrepreneurs, Troy Hennikoff and Joe Dwyer. And uh, as we get started, we're going to do the usual thing today. We're going to do the three topics, which I'll get to in a minute, and then we'll move quickly to idle chatter. But quick background on both of these guys. Troy Hennikoff is, the, is a serial entrepreneur. Um, the CEO and founder of, of a handful of companies um, throughout his past, and also currently the co-founder and CEO of Accelerate Labs here in Chicago. And then Joe Dwyer, another serial entrepreneur, um, CEO and founder of many companies over the years as well, and also a venture partner with OCA Ventures here in Chicago. Guys, how are you? Glad to be here. Great. Thanks to have us. Thanks, Thanks for, for being us. here. I really appreciate your time. This will be fun. So just to kick us off, um, as usual, the three topics, let me talk about what we're going to cover this week. Unique selling challenges for entrepreneurial companies. So what are the unique challenges that they face in the sales context? And then the second one are similarities and differences between B2B and the B2C selling challenge. And then finally, the best tactics that you've seen, we've seen, in early companies getting off the ground in the sales context. So, um, so let's start with subject one. One of the ways that that you know we think about this at Sales Engine, and I and I work on this, the unique selling challenges with students at Chicago Booth is, I sort of characterize it as early on, and you guys know this better than most people. Early on, when it's a small company, when you founded a firm you do what's called founder-led or entrepreneurial selling. So it's you out there trying to create opportunities, trying to get traction. And then if you, if you sort of locate that in time, near time zero as a company is young or you know, very early or beginning to emerge, and you, you sort of stop that time and then fast forward many months or even years, you have a professional selling organization. So picture walking into IBM where you know, I walk into IBM Joe, you're my boss, you're my manager at IBM, you give me a bag, you give me brochures, you give me pricing, you give me products, you give me benefits and customer stories and a territory, and I go out and sell. It's professional selling. And I selling. put my feet up on the banister or just occasionally call <laughs> right. and say, Craig, how's it going? Feet up on the desk. Yeah, exactly. feet up on the desk, exactly. How's it going? You got some sales? Good. All right. Back to golf. Right. And I'm out in the territory. That's exactly right. But think about that. It's such a different world. Professional selling, things are thought out. You can, you know, Troy, you can hand me... When I say, Troy, what are the objections I'm going to get as a salesperson? You can tell me. You've been down, you know, IBM's been down that road 7,000 times. But when it's, you know, Troy, Inc., and and you go to bring your first sales resource in, you know, you go to hire Joe, and he starts asking you questions about that, those are questions you don't have ready answers to. So that's sort of how I characterize the, the unique selling challenge between professional selling and entrepreneurial selling. So how do you guys think about that? Well, I, I think a couple things. First of all, I think it requires a different kind of person to uh, go out and figure out how to sell as opposed to the person who wants to be handed all the brochures, all the materials, all the stories, and just dial for dollars. Yep. And in the end, I think the person who's more that professional, as we described it, being handed all the materials, tends to be a very process-oriented person who understands the metrics, who understand, and will probably be more effective at selling because that's what they do really well. The, in my experience, the, the people who are more the I want to figure it out type get bored with the process right? because yeah. they're always looking for the new thing. And this is one of the challenges, and I'll roll it back because I'm a startup guy. I'm a really early startup guy. So when I'm out there selling, right? I'm the entrepreneur, I'm the startup guy, Right. I understand the value of the process and I understand that you need to dial the phone 80 times a day. And I, 
but I hate doing it myself. And so I'm not very good at it. But when I'm the only guy in the company, guess who has to do it? I have to do it. Yeah. Now, I'm great when the, when the person in, on the other end of the phone or in person engages with me because I'm passionate about my product. I love it. I can do a consultative sale. I can do all that stuff. Yep. But when it comes to process, entrepreneurs, the ones who are the initial founders, generally are not great salespeople. Um, the way we just described it. Right. And so it really is a challenge for them because they got to do it. You have to be, you're the CEO, you're the janitor, and you're everything in between. That's right. And you got to do it. And the ones who are successful are the ones who figure out to be good salespeople, not just selling their products, but you're selling your vision to your employees, you're yeah. selling it to your investors, you're selling it to your customers. So you are always selling, but that's different than being a great salesperson. Yeah. I, that's a great distinction. Joe, so... Jump in here. How do you think about this? Yeah, so um, I think very similar to Troy, but a, a few key um, thoughts that came to me is, one, if you're in the very early stage where I also uh, tend to operate, um, you're often not only dealing with the notion of learning how to sell, but learning what your product is, yeah. right? So um, there's a stage where it, well, I think one of the biggest mistakes that early stage companies make, a very common one, is to try to grow something that doesn't exist, right? right. Um, and so... Uh, that typically manifests as trying to sell something that isn't ready to be sold. And so in the beginning, uh, there's this process of product development where you're identifying your market, uh, you're identifying your customers, what your product is, you're going through sort of the learning phase, and then you, you kind of uh, turn the leaf and you've got, you get to a point where, like, hey, I'm pretty sure I know what my product is and what problem it's solving and who it's solving it for, and I've got some feedback that it's great. And then you get into uh, the very early parts of sales, when, and that typically ends up being, as Troy put it, it's learning. You're learning how to sell, right? So that yeah. the idea being you learn how to um, fish so that you can then teach the sales team that comes in later, teach them how to fish so that you're not, uh, you can't do it all yourself. You never could. I would never be great at it long term for the same reasons that Troy probably wouldn't be great at it. Um, but I really enjoy the part in the very beginning where I'm figuring it out. Um, and I really, I like, I treat it like product development, just like product development. Yep. And then, it, but the problem is as soon as it's no, not learning anymore, it's not fun anymore. Um, and there's that sort of awkward transition. But one of the beauty things, one of the beautiful things I found about, uh, being forced to sell yourself, which I absolutely advocate, um, is that too often, uh, if you bring in a sales team and you haven't sold it, that sales team or person usually will say, uh, customers don't want it. They're not buying it. It's not a sellable product. And you say, oh, really? Uh, well, how come I could sell 10 last week right. while also running all the rest of the company doing X, Y, and Z? And product and they, development. And right, exactly. And then they look at you, well, um, you're different or whatever. And I say, I, yeah, I am different. I'm not as good as you are at selling. But I, I, you know, I've got passion and here's some of the things that I said. So, and if you can't throw that back at them, how do you, how can you really tell whether it's a sellable product or not? So, all right. So, you know, you guys will have a unique view into this. So, Troy, you said you, you, get, you, you have to do this. Joe, you reinforce that. You know, the, 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 the founder has to sell. What, you know, absolute. you as a venture partner, you see companies all the time that are somewhere on that spectrum. They either are terrible at it, they suck at it, or they're great at it, or they're somewhere in the middle. You, as a mentor, Troy, of you know, Accelerate Labs and with lots of companies coming through that place over the last couple of years and a founder yourself of multiple companies, when you, when you have somebody that's struggling, 
or that's just not getting that message or is not getting results, what do you tell them? What, what, what do you give them? What advice do you give them? How do you sort of point them in the right direction? So this is one of the biggest challenges of early stage selling is that you have to distill the difference between do I have the wrong message, the wrong product, and do I have the wrong person? And so it's and it's really hard to do. So if your N is one, if you only have one salesperson going out and doing it, and if they're not successful, you really haven't learned that much because you don't know, is it them? Is it their approach? Is it the product? Is it the market? You don't know. Right. So if you can at all afford to do it, I much prefer to have a minimum of three, and that's what we started with with Sure Payroll. So when we decided we were going from a direct marketing model where we thought the business was going to be, but we were very wrong, to a direct sales model, which is where the business ended up, um, we immediately got three experienced payroll salespeople on board and put them out there. And sure enough, two of them did really well and one of them was failing miserably. And that person didn't last. Had we only hired that one person and our results been failed miserably, we might never have built that business. Yeah, that's a great insight. And, and so it's really hard. And that's the other benefit, by the way, of having... Uh, the entrepreneur, the founder, do some of the selling early on because you sort of take that variability of the person out of it. I know I'm not a great salesperson, but I know I'm good enough to prove whether or not this is going to work. And I'm really good on my feet and can figure out when I'm not, I don't have the right product market fit. How do you tweak it? How do you turn it? A lot of the best salespeople, particularly in a process, something like selling payroll, um, are you point them in a direction and they go in that direction. And they're very on rails. Coin operated salespeople. You put a coin in their back, and we go. Yeah, Yeah. but um, but early stage, that's not what you need. You need someone who's going to figure it out, who's going to adjust, who's going to tweak, and that's where someone who is a founder can really under who can really understand the market, really understand the needs. Some of the stuff Joe was talking about is actually stronger at getting you to that point faster than bringing in outside talent. So I want to pick up on something you said about that struck me about sure payroll. So you said you just said. You know, we founded it with this direct marketing model in mind, and we had to quickly, or maybe not so quickly, I don't know, pivot towards a direct sales model. Not quickly enough. Right. It's one <laughs> Is it of, ever? It's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing that I see with, with uh, you know, both my students at Chicago Booth and just people out in the, in the Chicago community and elsewhere in entrepreneurship where there's this belief, and I'm probably overstating it, I will admit, but there's this pretty deep-seated myth that... I'm going to found this business. It's a web app business or it's something technology related. And I'm going to sit behind my Mac or my PC and I'm going to throw out some really cool website and some stuff on, online and I'm going to gather people and that's how I'm going to build my market. Now, I admit, I'm a, I grew up in traditional B2B sales. So I'm sort of I'm, I'm morphing into our next subject, which is what are the difference between B2B and B2C selling? Is there a huge difference early on for the the uh, the founding team as it relates to the sales challenge? Let me, I have a, the history of many, many web companies, people think, oh, great, they're digital marketers and they don't have to have a sales team. That's awesome. The reality is you look under the covers of, of almost any successful digital business, there's a sales team of some sort. Uh, most of the web companies I can think of have at least inbound um, uh, support slash sales, like mm-hmm. they have call centers, very, very common. Um, many have outbound call centers. Fewer have uh, sort of feet on the street outbound salespeople, but plenty do. Uh, and I think that this goes hands in hand, hand in hand with this notion uh, that I have, and that is that uh, technology is a means, not an end in a business. Um, and if you are leading technology first, if it's about the technology, 
you probably don't have a business. And so, you know, sales is a part of real world business. It's connecting and, and convincing and explaining. And there's a lot of, a lot of types of sales. And if you think you're going to get away, you know, doing an entirely non sales oriented business, you're probably wrong. And here's an example of even the quintessential digital marketing firm, which you, you could say that, uh, 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 a lead generation business would be the quintessential digital marketing firm, right? They use digital marketing techniques to get customers, to, to make decisions, to uh, sign up for something, give information, and then they you know, sell those leads to somebody else to, to sell. Right. And guess what? Almost all the ones I know have call centers, right? They have people on the phone that will do part of that sales conversion. Um, and don't forget, they also have to get their own customers to buy the leads. That's sales. So... I mean, I, I think people, many people, I, I think, don't realize just how much actual selling goes on in, in even the most digital businesses. Somebody asked me this question today uh, in my open office hours. He came in and he said, you know, you've just read hundreds and hundreds of applications. What's the, what's the most common thing that people do wrong when applying to Accelerate? And very clearly the answer is they don't have a well enough thought out process for customer acquisition. What I really meant was yeah. that you know they're they're screwing up on the sales side, right? Right. Because they so 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 many believe build it and they will come, and that just doesn't work. I want to be clear with Sure Payroll, um, we didn't have a build it and they will come uh, right. process. What we had was a direct marketing process, including having Howard Draft, the founder of what's now Draft FCB, one of the the leaders of of direct marketing in the world, on our advisory board. Right. And we had a plan that basically said we're going to. You know, send 400 pieces of mail. Uh, of those 400, we'll get a, a 1% response rate, so we'll talk to four of them. And then of those four, we'll convert and sell one, and we'll get one customer out of it. So round numbers, a buck in, buck in the mail, yep. $400, we get a customer. For every $400 we spend, we get a customer. The, the business model works. The unit economic model works. You roll it up. The problem was people don't buy payroll based on a postcard or a letter or an envelope they get in the mail. And so we got a horrible response rate, and we realized we couldn't make those numbers work. But the part of the system that was working was once someone did call in, we closed them, actually more than 25% of the time. Ah, there's something in there. So then we said, well, how, how else can we get people on the phone with our salespeople? Well, we don't have to have them sit and wait for the phone to ring. They can actually dial the phone and start calling outbound. And... While the conversion rate goes down when you do outbound calling, yeah. the net-net customer acquisition cost was in the ballpark of what we needed to do, and we blew that company out. And today there are probably 80 salespeople sitting in the bullpen at your payroll making outbound calls. Well, it's funny, Troy, because you know one of your one of your partners, Michael Alter, I've heard him say this to people, and I you know we want to kind of get him on a future GabFest here, but he said one of the striking things that we learned early on is that buying payroll is an emotional decision. And it just blew the audience away when he said that. He said, what? You know, it should be, that should be a black and white. And he said, oh, my God, no, you've got guys doing payroll, you know, the, you know, the first-generation guy that's still doing payroll, which is just a nutty decision when you stop and think about it. And, you for, know, for, 100 more, yeah. for 100 reasons, yeah. For 100 reasons. But the other, the other reason that it's an emotional decision is the cost of being wrong and screwing up is really bad. So it, payroll, people don't decide to change payroll because they're going to save $5 a month. Right, the cost of being wrong is horrible. Imagine if you send out paychecks to your employees and they're wrong. Imagine if they're you paid them too much. Oh, that really sucks. Imagine if you pay them too little. That's even worse. 
right? Because now they're upset and they think you're cheating them yeah. and to earn that trust back. And so the there is a lot of emotion with sh- switching a payroll system almost more than just about any other decision you're going to make in your business. And it's such a little thing. It seems like it should be such a little thing. But, but you have to pay your people right. Don't screw with their money. But that's the point. It seems it's such an impactful thing and making a choice. One of the, one of the things I talk about a lot in growing businesses and, and uh com- creating competitive barriers is if you have something that, that is just not expensive to start with, if you can get them to start it, they're probably going to stick with it. Why? Because the, the benefit of saving money to switch to something else is negligible. It's not about saving money. It's about hassle. And so they're, I think they're imagining emotionally, imagine the hassle I could have if these people screw up. And I'm really doing it to save what? Sure, logic makes a ton of sense, but the emotion overrules it because I don't want to deal with the with the pain. So, so the insight there for us was: don't ask them if they want to save money on their payroll. Ask them when the last time ADP screwed up was, because as soon as they remember that hassle and that pain, and if you can assure them that your pain will be much less, that's why they switch. It's not about price. It's about control. That's really interesting. In the sales context, that's a lot easier for a direct salesperson to have that conversation, to ask that question. Absolutely. What are you going to do, put up a web page that says, when's the last time? You know, it's harder to do that than having Joe or Craig, the sales guy, say, hey, Joe or Troy, when when was the last time? I mean, that's just, that is a, that's a very powerful insight. So let me, let me, let me jump to our third topic. Um, when you guys think about the companies that you founded, when you think about the CEOs who you mentor and that you see every day, um, how do you think about the tactics that they should use? Like, it, what if I came to you and said, Troy, I'm struggling, I got this little business, this little sales engine business, or I've got this little web app business, and I just can't get this thing going, my conversion rate is really low, I'm not doing well, I get no traffic, I, I just can't engage people in conversation. What are the tactics that you suggest people use to be more effective in this thing called entrepreneurial selling? Yeah, so I'm going to take a little broader stroke at that. Sure. And um, so when I look at a new business or an early stage business, I generally immediately go to the risks. There are a whole bunch of risks in starting a business. Can you get customers? Does your product match what the market needs? Is there a technology risk? Is there, there are a whole series of them. And I can't help myself. I automatically rank order them in my head. And I've got a here are the risks. Yep. And then I go to the biggest one. And whatever one I think is the biggest risk is it can I get customers? Then we zero in on that and we'll create a whole bunch of little tests to determine whether or not customers even care about this stuff. If the biggest risk is technology, then let's get that prototype built and let's prove that technology. And what I'm trying to do is take that list of risks and cross off each one. Yeah. And when I get, you'll never cross off every risk because there's always risk in business. But when you get to the point where you've crossed off the ones that are meaningful and you're down to these ones that, yeah, there's a risk that my creative director may quit and take another job, but you know what? I can always hire another creative director. That won't sink my business. Then you're at the point where you can start really feeling good about scaling this thing up. And so I, that that's exactly how I approach it. I think about it as a series of risks, and my job is to de-risk the business by taking a priority order, biggest to smallest, and constructing tests to prove that those things are no longer risks or that they are a risk and, oh, the technology is going to fail. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Either we have a solution to it or we're done. But if we get to done quickly – and inexpensively, we've won. It's just like in sales. Yes is the best answer, but no is a really good Second answer. Second best answer you can get. Right. Maybe, maybe is a bad answer. That's you, exactly right. You, you can spend an eternity at maybe. With a no, you go to the next guy. 
So um, I try to get to yes or no very quickly. That's fantastic. Joe, do you want to chime in? You're shaking your head. like No, I totally, that's exactly what I do with the only wrinkle, and you may also do this, is that uh, I rank order them, and then I make a list of how certain I am, because I I think of them more as risks or uncertainties, um, and I'll sort of say, how certain am I? I'll make a statement. This is true. I make a list of statements that have to be true for this to be a successful business. Basically the same concept. And then I'll, I'll rank order them in importance, and then I will say, how true do I think it is? How certain am I? that it is true, right? Right. Um, and then why am I that certain? I'll put a little, add a little list. And then below they'll say, what are some things I could do to, to further improve my certainty about that particular line item? Right. And what I do is I'll rank order it in a mix of importance, but also what's the cheapest, fastest things I can test, right? And so that makes me think of sales. When it comes to sales, I don't know. I, it would depend on the situation. Again, just like Troy, I'd have some sort of a list in my head, and I'd be thinking, all right, what – what today? What am I trying to figure out? Right. What am I learning? Right. But I'm imagining that I'd say you want fast cycle multiple experiments. So go find a place where there's a bunch of people to talk to who might be prospective clients, and try very small things with them. So for digital intent, um, yep. one of my businesses, I, I tried to figure out what words I could say to people about the company, where that I would get a response, sort of the nodding head. I get it. Oh yeah, I know you know a project that would make sense for that, and I just kept on trying it with friends, family, anybody, and I just sort of it's a mini science experiment, and I've come across a set of words that seemed to work, and it also helped me even form what the company was, right? Sort of conforming the company to what seemed to work in terms of the responses of the people I'm talking to. So I'd think maybe trade show if you can get a normal visitor badge to a trade show and just walk around pitching people and even saying, I'm not trying to sell you. I just want to know whether this sounds interesting at all. So things like that where you're just not spending m- you know, much money, but you can do a series of, uh, of experiments to get uh, a sample size big enough to get some, some certainty about. You know. You'd like to be able to write on that list? I asked 50 people right. who were in the industry uh, whether they thought this was valuable or something like that, and the answer was 32 said yes. And I, I want to add to that because while I, I – I totally agree with what Joe's saying. There actually are electronic tools that you can use today to make that much, much easier and much more measurable. For example, AdWords and landing pages. So you want to test five different uh, value propositions, have a little ad that is literally an AdWord that is your value proposition, you know, whatever, drink more coffee faster, have a bigger, whatever they are, boom, have those, have each one of them go to a landing page that is relevant, yep. so the Google will actually put it up there. Spend a hundred bucks on each one; you'll get in round numbers a hundred clicks. But you'll be able to see the click-through rate. And so, if it took you five thousand impressions to get a hundred clicks on one, and it took you twenty thousand impressions to get a hundred clicks on the other, wow! That first one was way more effective at communicating. Right, right. It resonated more. Yeah. Resonated more. And so, there's so much that you can do so yeah. inexpensively and so quickly. And what's important about that that's a little different than going and asking people is sometimes people are afraid to tell you your baby's ugly. Right. Right. And so, if you go up to them, hey, I got this cool idea. What do you think about it? Their general inclination is going to be to tap pay on the back. So that's a great idea. I, I really like that. That's true, yeah. Um, and But here it's totally anonymous. They don't know if you're a real business or not. You're looking at real consumer behavior, and you can get great data really inexpensively and really quickly, like 24 hours kind of quickly. Yes, yeah. I, I do it every single business. It's fantastic. It's one of the first things I do. Totally agree. Yep. It's just, it works. So, $500 best spent. 
So I'll, I'll chime in really briefly on this tactics question because you guys have offered some great insights here. You know, I'll take a slightly different sort of approach to this. When, when I think about tactics that founder-led enterprises are in, in the sales challenge, I try to look at it, and we've explored this a lot on the Sales Engine website and the blog, but you know, this, I sort of ask people, do you have the right combination of knowledge, skills, and discipline? And that is so core to the sales challenge, as I understand it, that it's so interesting in the responses you get when you really begin to explore where are people's sources of knowledge, where is the entrepreneur's sources of knowledge, what are the skills that that person, he or she has, and what is the discipline to the sales challenge itself. And just quickly, I often find that people obviously have tons of knowledge. They're passionate, enthusiastic, enthusiastic about this business. They've accumulated knowledge. The skills are an interesting exploration, but the discipline of selling, because you, you, know, you guys, we've all said, it's really hard to just wade into a crowd and start selling, right? It's just, it's hard. But, and that's the discipline. That's the sort yeah. of eat your veggies piece, right? And so it's so interesting to explore that, use that framework just to explore, because then you, I love the, the idea of some of your tactics that you've suggested, because then you can go, okay, are you doing these A-B tests with discipline? Yeah. Or are you just sort of, you know, out there and, and not really getting good data and not reaching enough, whether it's verbal or via, you know, mediated by technology? It's just an interesting so question. So, yeah, it's a great question. And the answer I have to admit for myself is not always that disciplined because while I have a lot of discipline in the startup stuff and learning, I, you know, if it's not challenging, if I'm not, you know, learning something new, I'm just not as interested in it. And I can always find something that I can justify doing that's, Great learning, yeah. and, and I know I need to do it. Oh, and it's a lot more interesting. And so, you know, it's it's very tempting not to finish, you know, the the full process. So, all right, guys, this has been great. So let's let's uh, go to the second part of the Gab Fest, which is the what we call idle chatter, which is the the one thing that you're going to talk about this weekend with friends and neighbors and and family. Can be anything. I'll I'll start just for fun to get 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 us going. Um, my chatter this week is about uh, a really cool book that I've just finished called The Happiness Hypothesis, and it's by a guy, a psychologist out of the University of Virginia called Jonathan Haidt. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's H-A-I-D-T. We'll post a link to the book. Um, it's just a fantastic book. And, and just really quickly, um, for, for the chatter section of the, of the GabFest, I thought I would just talk about the sort of the foundational metaphor that he uses. Because he's obviously exploring, you know, what makes people happy? How does that, how do we um, become more happy? Or how do we make changes in our lives that make us happy? And I think it has a lot to do actually with the sales challenge, but it's just interesting on its face. He uses this fantastic metaphor of a rider on an elephant. And the elephant symbolizes your unconscious mind. And the rider, of course, is your conscious. And, you know, he, he goes chapter after chapter, you get this sense. And he, he does all these, he, he quotes all these experiments about how we think as a rider, our conscious mind, we think we're in control mm -hmm. of our behaviors when we're really not. And there's fascinating experiments about how, you know, these these. Uh, dot experiments on the web where they put they put a dot in the middle of the screen and then they flash words and they flash them so fast it's subliminal and then they put a real word and and your unconscious actually acts faster than your conscious right and it's just this, these fascinating experiments the the thing that I really took away one of the cool things I took away from the book that I wanted to share with you guys is when you think about this notion of of discipline how you know discipline is so much about changing your behavior let's say you want to get in better shape 
Well, we all know what you have to do to get in better shape. You got to get up and work out. Right? You know, it's oh, wait, what simple. about all those miracle diets or whatever? <laughs> right. Don't they fix everything? Right. Or, you know, you want to eat better. Well, then you got to have some vegetables. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's the obvious stuff. But Haidt, or Haidt talks about in his book how you, what you're actually doing is you're trying to steer the elephant. And that's really, really hard to do. And what he talks about, and I won't go, I'll, you know, I'll wrap up with this, but what he talks about is how successful people make change and become more disciplined or just change their behavior in some way is to distract the elephant. He said, it's not, you know, many of us, and usually around the first of the year, people make New Year's resolutions. Many people have an insight and they go, oh my God, I want to be more like Troy or more like Joe. And, and they have that insight. They go, oh my God. And that, imp that insight is the impetus for change. He said, as a psychologist, that absolutely experiments prove that does not do you any good. That insight is gone like a New Year's resolution. By February 1st, it's gone. It's disappeared. It and you've, you've lapsed back to your, own your old behavior. But he said, if you can distract the elephant a little bit and keep distracting, you may have a chance to head towards better behavior. And, you know, as a teacher, I, I, I think about this a lot because I talk about, you know, you know folks, you, you got to wade into that conference and you got to say what your business is about and try to engage people in conversation. You have to, and, and, and if Joe's not interested, you got to pivot to Troy. And if Troy's not, you got to pivot to somebody else. And you got to keep moving through that crowd. And that just makes people uncomfortable because it's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So how do you change behavior? So that was that was my chatter for this week. All right, I got to read the book. So I got to figure out what are some of the tools to distract the very big elephant that I'm riding. Right. And we all are. You know, it's 99% and the rider is 1%. Yeah. So what do you guys have this week? Really quick. Uh, I don't know. I, I was uh, I had a, an interesting conversation earlier today with a, a, a team from the booth New Venture Challenge. Actually, it wasn't New Venture Challenge. It was one of the venture classes, uh, and they asked me, "So, Joe, um, what are your observations about selling into uh, uh, healthcare, particularly selling into doctors?" And you know, I, I don't have a ton of experience doing it, um, but I have uh, learned a few things and, and have a few thoughts uh, that I. Um, shared with them and they, they thought it seemed pretty interesting. So here's some of the thoughts that I had. Um, number one, the road is littered with the bodies of companies that have tried to sell directly to doctors. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. My, my, my parents are doctors. I actually used to run my dad's office um, uh, when I was a lot younger and I, I watched it happen. You, they just they have this huge barrier up because they're, they've been, for whatever, decades been, been uh, beaten on by the sales reps. Um, but here's some thoughts that I had. Number one, and you know, one of the key ones, uh, I'll call it an insight. It's, I think, TBD, whether it is. But, uh, and that is that doctors act more like scientists than they do uh, business people uh, in terms of how they analyze data and how they approach the ROI of, of analyzing data and considering uh, options. Um, and also how they approach innovation, right? So um, here's an example. My father has been a cardiologist for, I don't know, 40 years, 30, 30 some odd years. Um, you know, very successful. Uh, he's an entrepreneurial kind of guy, probably more entrepreneurial than most doctors. He's started and, you know, done some businesses, sold some businesses. But he will not prescribe a new medicine to a patient until it's been on the market, I think, five years. And I said, Dad, why? Some of these medicines really make a big difference for people. And he said, yeah, some of them kill people. And he said, I need the data. And I don't trust the FDA data. It's, you know, they have a, they're trying to balance getting something quickly enough to market, but in the end, you really don't know how something works until you see the broad market data. Well, when you try to come in and sell them a SaaS product or something like that, 
it's really interesting how they start to treat it like a uh, an experiment. Where's the evidence? How many people are using it? Where's the evidence that it's efficacious? So the slick marketing brochure stuff yeah, right. and the e-details, they, they'll look at that, and actually it's an affront to, the, to them in a way. If it looks too slick, um, my experience, they don't want to buy it at all because they feel like they're buying something. They want to feel that you're giving them the data, that they're making then a rational choice based on the data as a scientist about the best way to uh, impact patient care. But the funny thing is they treat uh, non-patient care things the same way. And just one more quick thing that I said that they thought was pretty interesting, and I kind of came up with it on the spot, so uh, don't hold me to it. Don't, <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, entrepreneur, that's what we do, we innovate, right? Right. Um, so uh, I, I said, you know, here, here's something that they seem to do. This sort of the, the data uh, supports this. Uh, they seem to spend more time analyzing uh, the potential or value or risk of small things than I would normally expect them to. So you come in with a very inexpensive offering um, that, you know, there's some evidence that it's going to improve their business, save them money or, 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 or whatever. And uh, they seem to do it in an in inordinate amount of analysis to try to figure out whether it's worthwhile. Whereas, you know, uh, MBA types, uh, uh, like all of us, um, tend, I think, to say, well, you know what, it's fairly low risk. I have some evidence that it works. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of my time spinning my wheels to figure out whether it's just right or not because I have enough yeah. to make an informed decision. Whereas I've seen cases where I start to think maybe the doctors don't think that way, that it, it's, it's either an analysis or it's not. Yeah. And, and so they end up pushing off a lot of decisions that might otherwise be pretty practical just because they haven't they don't have the time or energy to do the full yep. analysis on it. That's just some stuff I was chatting about. That's great. I'm curious if anybody has any thoughts about it. Uh, I love it. That's, that's um, you know, that uh, like you said, the, the road is littered with companies littered. that have tried to sell it. I'm a son of a doctor, too. So, you know, it's, it is a different thought process yeah. and a different level of analysis. Troy, what have you got for Idle Chatter? Um, for Idle Chatter, so I was thinking about this on the way over. I have been so heads down the last couple of month and a half with reading interviews and interview reading applications and interviewing companies for accelerate that i really i haven't been reading any great books i have been talking to lots of entrepreneurs though about lots of interesting stuff but something hit me and it was that just 24 months ago we were announcing the first class of accelerate nobody knew what accelerate was what's an accelerator what you take 10 companies put them through this boot camp really is that going to help um and it did and we did a great job you know two years ago when we ran it. We ran it again last year, and this were, we just announced our third class yesterday. And, you know, we're based in Chicago. Nobody really three years ago, two years ago, thought about Chicago as a place to come start companies. This year, not only did we have applications from around the world, but we had app, we had people who we accepted. So this year we have only four companies that are coming here from Chicago. We have one from California, one from Texas, one from Florida, one from Boston, and uh, one from India, and one from France. It's and it oh, just awesome. shocked me awesome. at the quality of the applicants and the diversity of places that they're coming from. And uh, this whole entrepreneurial thing, it, you know, I don't think this is a fad. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I sure hope not because I'm in trouble. I've never had a real job. Me too. So I, uh, unless you can't wait tables or whatever. But. but it is so cool to see this all coming together. And all of those get folks are coming to Chicago to start their businesses this year and uh, or continue to grow their businesses. And we're, we couldn't be more excited about the class that we've selected. So You know what really excites me about that? And that is that the cross-pollination opportunities. Just the same way yeah, that right. they, they select people for MBA schools, graduate programs, whatever it is, to, to uh, enable them to teach each other, add value to each other. Yep. Those teams 
teams inevitably are going to add value to each other through their diversity. That's awesome. Yep. Well, I, I have absolutely no authority from which to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, you know, thanks to both of you for all of you, all that you guys do for the Chicago entrepreneurship community, because it is amazing how much you guys have done. And it's really cool to think of the international flavor of this and just the national stage that you're putting Chicago on in terms of entrepreneurship. So, um, so I have no authority to say this. I do have authority to say thank you both so much for sharing your wisdom with us on the Sales Engine Gab Fest. This has been really fun. And uh, you guys have a great rest of your week. Thanks. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Great. Thanks.